Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, everybody. This is Sean Merwin. I am here with the one and only Teos Abadia to do another episode of Down with D&D. Teos, what's the happenings? Woo! I was just camping, and my understanding is there's absolutely no news. Nothing happened while I was away. That's good. That's good. It's, <laughs> it's good to turn off all technology and or your brain uh, yep. and, and, and do those things. I think I'm going to walk to Portland uh, <laughs> and go camping. It should only take me, oh, about a month. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was lovely. Um, it was a good way to, to be not in our house and away from people. Mostly there were, there were a couple of trails you had to be careful. And I have to say, please wear a mask because none of these people were wearing masks and, um, I have all the compassion in the world for them and yet really want them to wear masks. It, it's true. Uh, I'm about to deliver my daughter off to college and I will be well masked and we'll we'll see how that goes we'll see if it lasts yeah, more than a week it's school time here for my kids too they're about to get started and it's like well, we're all remote but it's yeah it's, it's crazy times yep yep but you know teos you didn't really miss much big dnd news except for all ah. this huge dnd news we could basically <laughs> do a whole episode of of just news this time but we're going to yeah. slip in uh the first part of our deep dive into the Theros book, the mythic Woo. odysseys of Theros. Uh, but the big news this week was while people are waiting for their Icewind Dale Rime of the Frostmaiden book, you can now, all, now also wait for another book called Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which will bring more rules for the players of this fabulous game of D&D. Uh, would you like to touch on some of the things that are going to be in this marvelous tome, Deus? Yeah, this is, I mean, it, when they say everything, they kind of mean everything. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just packed full of stuff. And folks who love, uh, you know, I'm on a Discord channel with some of my buddies, and two of the guys are just heavily, heavily into optimizing. And mm-hmm. someone wrote, you know, are you wearing your white underwear for this? <laughs> Get ready. Because it's just, it's like, what? Um, so there are uh, subclass options for every single D&D class, including the Artificer, which is now reprinted and will appear in this book. So it's not just an Ebron, so it's going to be kind of you know, more widely accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 22 new subclasses. I mean, if that's all we had, we'd be like, okay, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. But no, no. Uh, there's a lot more to this thing. Oh, no, yeah. Um, all kinds of character options that are going to change things. Uh, we have uh, something, and I, I saw a lot of bits and pieces here, but I couldn't fully grasp exactly what's going on. But we are going to see the long-awaited method of separating a race from its racial benefits. This is something that people have been asking for and people have been talking about for quite some time, mm-hmm. both in D&D and elsewhere. Uh, and it, it looks like maybe it's going to be using a lineage system that's a bit like the heroic chronicle system that's found in Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, mm-hmm. where you, bef- before you start play, you have these things that establish your background and give you these various benefits, and then you begin play. And so it's, it, maybe it's a modified version of that. It should be really interesting. Um, there were a whole bunch of, of Twitter 
announcements that were kind of linked one to the other. And they would leak little bits of pieces of each of these different chapters. So one of them was like the Bard College of Creation subclass will be one of the subclasses. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Like you said, if even if it, if it was just just 22 subclasses, people would be, okay, that's, that's a lot. But if you start getting into these, you know, new character building options where you can pick and choose what would normally be your racial benefits, um, that's, um, that's amazing. That's optimizer's dream. Yeah. Uh, and possibly a DM's nightmare. Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to wait and see, but it doesn't end there folks. Now they are going to introduce something called patron groups uh, or group patrons this is similar to what we saw in Eberron Rising from the Last War, where your whole entire group can get benefits and get background information based on working for a specific group or a specific patron. Yeah, this is pretty neat. Um, the ones in Eberron, you know, make a lot of sense. They're doing things like if you're working for a particular Dragonmark house. Uh, and the benefits include things like, you know, you always have room and board at, at their various establishments and things like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if these have a little more teeth on the benefit side, mm -hmm. which could be pretty cool. Um, I also can't help but think that this segues perfectly or links perfectly into the franchise system from Acquisitions Incorporated, if you wanted to do that. Yes. I mean, and, group patron franchise, yeah. it's right there. Yep. And, and if you want to hear more talk about franchises and using the Acquisitions Incorporated rules, Teos and I did a panel for PAX, which is coming up in the next couple of weeks, about using franchises and using the Acquisitions Incorporated way of playing D&D &D to spice up your campaign. When I get yeah. the exact time and date for that panel, uh, I will share it out on the Twitters and announce it here. Always but, be branding. That's right. But, but yeah, yes. group patrons, perfect, perfect synergy, right? Like, yep. Yeah. And so... Above and beyond the 22 subclasses and the new character building uh, and character creation uh, stuff, we have new spells, new artifacts, and magical tattoos. Uh, yes, and, and additional stuff. Yeah, I mean, so some of the, the news that was leaked was a tree limb spellcasting focus for druids and warlocks called a bell branch a sneaky spellbook for wizards that seems like a romance novel, but actually carries a bunch of illusion spells, extra planar shards that each suit a different type of sorcerer, uh, and there's renewable charges for them, so you can spend your spell slots more freely while keeping some magic in reserve. I'm a little scared, John. I, I, I am. And <laughs> l let's talk about that after we talk about what's in this book, because I am okay. scared too. Uh, yeah. So there's also expanded rules options for things like sidekicks, supernatural environments, natural hazards, parlaying with monsters, as well as guidance on running session zeros, which is, you know, super important for most people who are running uh, campaigns. Yeah, and it, it probably bears saying, right, this book seems to be a very close parallel to the super successful Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Mm -hmm. and seems to follow that recipe of not just giving you some things for players or just for DMs, but it gives you the whole, you know, covers everybody, something for everybody, and with lots of guidance as well. And the guidance in Xanathar's is fantastic. So mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing what they do here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that me as a mostly DM 
as I shake in fear about what is going to be introduced into the D and D world, at least I there's some things I can look at and and grow my game, as it were, okay. uh, using this book. And there's also puzzles. Uh, I know Elisa Teague mentioned on Twitter, she the puzzle mistress of D and D, that she had a hand in creating these puzzles that you can drop into D and D adventures. Uh, complete with traps and guidance on using puzzles in your campaign. Awesome. Yep. And this book will release on the 17th of November, 2020. There is an alt cover, which you can get if you buy it at your friendly local gaming store. And the cover price is forty nine ninety five, which is pretty standard for, uh, for a book like this. I keep thinking that that price will go up uh, for something like this book. Because mm-hmm. um, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. there's so much in there. Um, but yeah, the, the alt cover looks pretty cool. I really yeah. like the alt cover yeah. um, with Tasha on it. And you know, folks may be wondering who is Tasha. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did a little searching, and I found one piece that I didn't know. I knew a fair bit about Tasha. Uh, it's another name for Igwilv, mm-hmm. and Igwilv is one of the most dangerous spellcasters NPCs from the world of Greyhawk. Comes back from the old canon lore of the Greyhawk setting way back when, yeah. the origins of D&D. Uh, but what I didn't know is apparently she originated when a young girl sent Gary Gygax a letter written in crayon mm-hmm. asking him to create a spell involving laughter. And that led to Tasha's hideous uncontrollable laughter spell mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of kept going and, and he wrote a Natasha character in something related to Baba Yaga. And that led Gary Gygax to later say to people that, yes, Tasha and Igvolv are one and the same and are related to Baba Yaga. So she has this strong kind of witch presence, mm-hmm. yep. um, very witchy kind of character. She first appeared as Igvolv in the 1982 classic adventure, The Lost Caverns of Zoshkamp, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And there, that one is just packed full of lore around things like summoning demons and... Uh, other worlds and yeah just conjuration spells all kinds of dark things like that um and and that kind of began to flesh her out as someone who had allied herself with uh different forces including grast mm-hmm. grass the cambian uh demon yeah yep and Jeremy Crawford recently in discussing this book was saying that they wanted to update Tasha to provide greater insight into her motivations. I think it's always worth remembering that, you know, back in this era when these characters began, you could have a character like Warduke and you're like, what's Warduke about? I don't know. Carries Mm -hmm. a shield. Like, you know, whether it was a guy or a girl, they often were completely, uh, you know, just a paper cut character with very little to them. But I think women characters especially end up being seen through this lens where there's just very little to them. Mm -hmm. uh, And they tend to look in art, especially like there's someone's, you know, arm candy. And so I think a lot of that art with Grazd, where Grazd and Igwebel together kind of perpetuate that stereotype. And so it's it's nice that she is going to be front and center. And I imagine we'll get a far more rich history now that will make her a bigger presence in people's games, which is cool. Right. And in uh, Wizards has done a good job of keeping themes going, right? There's a book like this will come out and then a book that's similar in theme. So I'm wondering if 
we will see Tasha in like a a, a book, right? In, in a campaign yeah. setting, as opposed to just using her as the name here. Yeah, I mean, because Xanathar's Guide to Everything came out before Dragon Heist, right? Right. Yeah. So, so that's that's yeah. You're, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. So yeah. that gives us a little clue, maybe, in, into what's coming next. Yeah. So I mean, so, yeah. I always have to cry a little bit, Sean, when the world of Greyhawk gets usurped into Forgotten Realms, which just <laughs> happens. You know, you name a cool thing in Greyhawk, and it's just slowly and surely going to be put into the Forgotten Realms. And yeah, there's. Why would we ever cover Greyhawk when we've already taken everything out of it? Right, right. The Temple of Elemental Evil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. P- part of, I mean, this is very exciting news for D&D. Well, so did you want to chat about the, the kind of our fears about this book or do you want yeah. to go on to the next? No, I, I did want to talk, talk about this. You know, part of me is celebrating this new great book with all this great content from, from the best minds at Wizards, right? The, the D&D folks there. Uh, like Dan Dillon, right? They brought Dan Dillon in, just an incredible D&D designer. Uh, so smart, so so good yeah. with with the rules and with the, the feel of the game as well as the mechanics. Uh, so there's so much to celebrate. Part of me is weeping over the the role, r- rules bloat that, that is coming. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not bad you know no tool is necessarily bad it's how you use the tool and that's kind of why i'm looking forward to talking about this theros book because i think we can touch on that uh in there because you don't need to use every rule and sometimes it's good to either as a dm say no to a player or as a player to to rein yourself in and not try to do everything at once because you can run different campaigns and you can play different flavors of D&D. And that little bit of self-restraint can pay a, a big dividend down the road. Yeah, it really can. So I have a couple of immediate thoughts when you say that. One is to look back on fourth edition where fourth edition began as a, a really well-balanced game. Mm-hmm. And the moment that the first book came out with magic items, yep. that really was gone. The moment that hit the internet, mm-hmm. I recall, you know, I mean, just there was no way for the game to remain the same when you introduce dozens and dozens of magic items for every slot and mm-hmm. immediately builds just became broken. And the mm-hmm. game really truly suffered for all that being added to it it was true baggage and the game had to recover from that Mm -hmm. um and if that one book hadn't been published the game really would have been stronger and 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 i think you know over the years there have been a few stories coming out about how that was written and wizards has great people but sometimes the way things happen just as they do at all the companies where where we work Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things aren't perfect and, and a thing gets overlooked or something has to be accelerated to a schedule or something and not everything can be watched over and, and sanded down to where it's safe. And, and so when you have books with lots and lots of features, there's always that danger, right? I worry about that. Yeah. Um, the second thought is, and I think it's what you're kind of saying around Theros, which is that when, uh, when the Forgotten Realms uh, campaign for fourth edition was out, it allowed every option under the sun 
-hmm. And when we created the Dark Sun campaign, that was a, a, another option people could play, we had to think through whether people would be okay with playing with a limited set of options because they were so used to having everything and they thirsted for every new rule to be available to them. Uh, but we made the hard decision of saying, you can only use this really small subset of rules. And we said no to some things that were really like, I, I, we really did not know if it would be okay. Right. And the truth is it was okay with players because we explained it up front mm -hmm. and stated our case and promised sort of a better experience that was a focused, really feel like Dark Sun experience. You're not gonna have a war forged at your table. Mm -hmm. um, it worked, right? It worked to funnel down and like that, concentrate in on something. Yeah. And as a home game DM for a home campaign, you are, you know, more uh, more likely to say no to to you know your your player. You can look at your player in the face and say, "This is why I don't I don't want this particular rule in." And uh, everyone's different, and some people are more different than others. But yeah, you know, for the most part, adults can be adult and and talk to each other where things tend to go even further off the rails and this uh it's intensified this sort of rules blow and and breaking of of things is for something like adventurous league where you know it's a worldwide campaign where it's harder to say no and so i i i feel bad for I'm an Adventures League administrator, but I work on the Eberron side of things. So I feel bad for the Forgotten Realms administrators uh, who are going to have to deal with this kind of sense of entitlement that some players have that because they are a player, they should be able to do anything that they want. And Yeah, and technically you have the plus one rule. Right. So normally you would say, I have the player's handbook plus one source but when a book like this comes out and it's true of xanathar's already right you know some books are not like others like it's one thing to say plus one and take i don't know princes of elemental evil player options but when you say pl your plus one is tasha's that gives you you know spells all kinds of features mm -hmm. feats you know when it's that much then you're getting a lot for your plus one and, and right. you have those problems and and some of it is what is dictated to the Adventures League from Wizards, right? Wizards might say we, you know, the, their first uh, dictum on this whole we're splat book thing was we don't expect any um, DM to use all these resources. We we expect you as the DM to have the player's handbook plus one book. And that's why the Adventures League did what they did, because it, that was straight from Wizards. And since Xanathars came out, I think Wizards has now said, well, we expect Xanathars to kind of be a supplement to the player's handbook, so that should always be included. And if they do the same thing with this, now you are into a different stratosphere. Yeah. Um, and, right, it all boils down to what is fun for your group, and it's, it's again, you know, it's, a, it's an adult responsibility to look at not just yourself, but everyone around you to say, hey, what is the most fun for everyone, not just for you? 
and make some sacrifices. The sacrifice might be you as the DM needing to add something you don't want to give, but it would give some joy to players. Whereas the player, it might be having to step back and not use certain rules that will ruin the fun at the table. Yeah, that could, this could maybe be an entire topic that we cover sometime. Oh yeah. This idea of, of when it, when players overwhelm the DM and, and that, that sort of tough situation where character options can make characters too powerful. How do you handle that? That's a yeah. really well, interesting topic. We only have about three months uh, to wait before we will probably be having that discussion <laughs> uh, as the book comes out in November. But before this book comes out, there is another huge announcement. The D&D Celebration, which is happening September 18th through 20th in the online world. So this is surrounding the release of Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. So this is a celebration of that release where you can come and play online in the world of Icewind Dale. You can watch uh, play sessions with D&D Luminaries. There will be panels led by the D&D design team and community. Uh, it's, it's going to be a big thing. It's, I think it's sort of like the D&D Live play was a couple months ago but but bigger yeah and, and i always think right like you want to know like so was dnd live successful and the answer to that question is always well do they do the same thing again yes <laughs> so they did dnd <laughs> live to announce this book and now we're seeing dnd celebration when it comes out clearly yeah. that was successful and we're you know this is gonna we're gonna see more of this yep so several Thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised in charity for D&D Live. And the same thing is happening here. All of the Wizards of the Coast uh, portion of any funds raised, if you sign up to play games, are going to uh, Extra Life. Extra Life. Yep. Yeah. So you can go well, right now. Oh, go ahead, Tavis. I was just going to say that also they're going to be previewing Tasha's content during this time, which is so we'll, we'll see more and more about that book. So if you uh, want more information, you can just go to the Wizards website, right? wizards.com slash D&D, and it's the first thing on the page. So you can click on it, learn everything about it. If you want to play, I want to throw out a few things um, just to be aware of. Specifically, this is a three-day event. On Wednesday, you can play uh, a preview adventure called Ice Road Trackers. Um, this is the same adventure that ran at... D&D Live and at Gen Con. Uh, so if you've already played it there, just be aware that it's Friday, it's that same thing. On Saturday, there is going to be an epic adventure run three separate times. A, this is a three-hour event where all the tables that are playing in that particular time slot will be playing the same adventure at the same time. Uh, this is going to be a pretty large undertaking, uh, yeah. Teos, Teos and I are involved in the running of it and all of these things. Uh, and I was involved in the writing of it along with Celeste Conowich. Hi, Celeste. Good hey, job. Celeste. So hopefully it will go over swimmingly. And then on Sunday, it is the first running of the next Adventures League adventure of the season. And that is called The Frozen North. And I believe that was written by Paige Lightman. Hi, Paige. Hey, Paige. So one thing you need to know, though is that the thing uh, the adventures running on Friday and on Sunday are for only first and second level characters. 
So, and, and the Epic is for first through fourth level characters. So if you do play on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you'll have to decline a level at some point if you want to play that same character in the Sunday events. And if you are an Adventures League uh, veteran, you know what we mean by that. If you're not, we can explain it real quick. After an adventure, you can always decline to take a level. Uh, that gives you more time to play the character at the levels you enjoy the most. So if that is the case, that you want to play all three of these events um, with the same character, with the same character, then you need to do that. Yeah. So we got through that. Yeah. So uh, hit level two. If, if you want to play it all with the same character, yeah. hit level two, stay at level two. Yep. And at the very end of it, you can then level to three. Yep. And you'll have uh, enjoyed it greatly. And we are anticipating a release of the Season 10 Adventures League rules uh, around the same time of D&D Celebration. So uh, hang in there. Wait for more details on that. And if you are not an Adventures League player, but you are interested in playing at these things, that's okay. Uh, you can go sign up at the D&D Celebration event portal uh, and, and just sit down and have a game and, and see how it goes. Yeah, grab a pregen. There are pregens on the D&D website that are Adventures League compatible. You can just grab a pregen yep. uh, and play. And then you don't need to, you really honestly don't need to know any of the Adventures League rules. If all you did was bring one of those pregens that work yep. um, and you played and you didn't go beyond second level, yep. that's all you need to know. And you'll have a great time. You'll get a taste for what the Icewind Dale plot line is going to be like mm -hmm. and see some neat stuff, have some wonderful DMs run games for you. It's great. And speaking of that, Teos will be running uh, games all weekend. In addition to the good DMs, I'll be there. And Teos will be there as well. <laughs> now, you know, that normally, that's, that's, that's big news, right? That's enough. But huge news. huge news is they are hiring a VP of D&D, &D, a vice president of Dungeons & Dragons at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, a job posting went up a couple weeks ago. And I, I told Teos that if he didn't apply, I would never speak to him again. But uh, I, I came to my senses and realized I needed someone to podcast with me. So I, I have gone back on that promise. But uh, yeah, interesting times. Uh, you know, if you are an executive type and uh, good at juggling the proverbial cats or weasels or whatever it is that, that, that juggles that bites the least, um, you could uh, you could apply for that yeah i mean what a what a job right like oh yeah. man i mean i would i would love to do this job um and i think for someone who's who's used to this sort of like wrangling uh corporate departments you know that, that which is it's always a really hard job to do this kind of work uh which is the main reason i would say no to it right now but man someday i would love to do a job like this what a dream right yeah. to and you'd have to take that fan portion of your brain and, and put it mostly on ice. But, but, uh, but to have that responsibility and, and be able to work to try to help these team, these amazing teams, right. Do great work. Oh, that'd be incredible. Yeah. So whoever ends up there, I mean, wow, <laughs> that's yeah. going to be a dream job. Congratulations and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't need sleep. Did you? Right. Uh, and on a sadder note, uh, Kate Welsh is no longer working at Wizards of the Coast. They had announced that she is moving on to other opportunities. And I remember being very excited when she was hired because we knew about her from seeing her on the C team. And she was very dynamic and, and super fun and, 
and really charismatic. And I was, you know, I was excited when she was hired to bring a, hopefully a new perspective to specifically, you know, the D and D team. And I think, and it, yeah. And she did that, right? right. Like um, the products that she was a part of, you can feel her touch on those, uh, her creative angle on them. Um, and, and sort of the inspirational push that she brought to the, the various products um, from Salt Marsh to, you know, touching on the AI angle and just mm. fantastic. And, and I, I was fortunate, as I'm sure you did, to run into her at a number of, of events mm-hmm. and just she's fantastic. So we were very lucky to have her at Wizards. I'm sorry that she's moving on, but, but uh, you know, she has shaped the game. So it's great. Yeah, I I took my family to the uh, PAX South in San Antonio, and we were sitting at the actual live show, and Kate was in the audience. She was right a a row in front of us, and she was yelling just as loudly as anyone else in the audience at the stage and laughing and really getting into it. And my daughter looked at me and said, wow, she should be up on stage. And I'm like, "Uh, honey, just wait a couple hours and she will be. So, you know, just... Just my daughter, who didn't know who she was, right, could, could just, after 20 minutes of seeing her, realize how charismatic and, and you know, lively and, and into it, into the game, into, into storytelling that, that she was. So, you know, well, good luck. I, I expect and hope that she will continue to be, because she likes D&D so much and likes this kind of, you know, the space so much, I hope she'll continue to be. Uh, present in the space and, and help improve the space. Yep. Hope so. Now, on to lesser big news, but still news. The Unearthed Arcana survey is up. Uh, we had talked about the College of Spirits bard last time, and I don't have time this week to talk about the undead patron for warlocks. Maybe we'll shuffle that off to next, next time. But for anyone out there who wants to take the survey, make sure you get to uh, the website, there is a link from the front page to the survey, and you can take it. And do you want to talk quickly about Jasper's Game Day? Yeah, so Jasper's Game Day is a group run by Fenway Jones with help from others. Uh, it tackles suicide awareness and prevention. Uh, she has been doing this for several years now at major conventions, and they tend to have a big yearly event that they do, and this time it's going to be all online. So August 26th to August 30th. There are games being run by all kinds of incredible DMs. Uh, Just the 26th, which is the day we're recording this, we have Sharif Jackson, Greg Tito, Kate Welch, and Dan Dillon. Mm -hmm. Um, Other DMs include James Intercasso, heard of him, uh, Dr. Megan Connell, Omega Jones, TJ Storm, James Hake, B. Dave Walters, Satine Phoenix, and more. I mean, just, yeah. So amazing games, and you you can get seats at these. Uh, wherever there's still space mm-hmm. um, and watch them and participate. Uh, the easiest way to get all of the information is to follow the Twitter, go to Twitter and look up the account Jasper's game day. Mm-hmm. And that will have all of the schedule of the games and you can follow the link to see them. Yep. Uh, the last time one of them. Yeah. You're playing today, right? Today. With, yeah. in Sharif's yep. game. So I'll be yep. bringing my half orc Grom two eyes That'll be a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, I've run games for Jasper's Game Day in the past, and it's a a heck of a lot of fun. So, you know. Great group. Yep, you can get in, play, watch, uh, and donate if possible. 
for a really good cause and, and Fenway does a great job as an ambassador for it. So it really uh, does. Yep. Now, now that we've whew, got through a lot of news, we are going to talk about the mythic odysseys of Theros. Uh, what we're going to do is kind of do a review of the book, but we're looking at it through a specific lens. We're looking at it through the lens of if I'm running a D and D campaign, what do I love about this book and how I'm, how am I going to use this book for a campaign? So I wanted to just talk for a second. We we've talked about this book before. So you know that it's sort of got this classical Western mythology angle, Greek mythology, Roman mythology. And uh, as a student of mythology over the years, I, uh, I love the, the stories that, that are told by this. Uh, a lot of us have only gotten our Greek mythology education through D&D, right? We flip through the old deities and demigods book and we think, oh, okay, I know everything there is to know about Greek mythology because I know the stat block for, uh, you know, for... Uh, I know so. Athena's armor class. <laughs> right, right. I know what her shield is called. Oh, good job. Um, but, but there is a deeper... Uh, there's deeper stories told through this mythology. Uh, Myth the Greek mythology tells of these ultra powerful creatures like the Titans that are very unlike humans, but those creatures are then overthrown by lesser powerful creatures that are still powerful, like the gods. So the gods overthrow the, the Titans. So the, the powers that be in the world become a little more and more like humans. And then you get demigods who are sort of mortal, sort of immortal, but they too can, can sort of test the gods when they have to. So there's sort of this hierarchy of power where mortals like humans are sort of at the bottom, but they're ever striving up toward this sort of ultra powerful uh, being. And, and they, so they can strive to become more godlike while the gods are a little bit more mortal than gods in other cultures might be. So you'll get the gods coming down to earth. And I one of can I just say that the aspect of quality of, of the of fault is what has always attracted me to this type of thinking, this type of, of pantheon, right? Where you have a world where the gods uh, have all of the human foibles and fall prey to them, are unable to, to, to be perfect enough to not do them. So whether it's envy or lust or whatever, they, they will fall to these tendencies like a person would. And these things they do will then, these failings will involve mortals and create this sort of relationship back and forth. And then champions will test them because of these foibles, right? And that, that's right. a great interplay. Yeah. And there is a conceit within this book that the gods are only there because mortals worship them, right? So, so while the gods are powerful, they get their power through mortal worship, so there, there's this, there's this balance of power, and it can always shift in one direction or the other, depending on the god involved. As as Teos talked about, their their faults, their flaws, and what the the heroes bring to this whole tangled mess of fate. Yeah. So. Uh, did, is there anything that you want to talk about as just an overview of this before we yeah, get into I mean, the chapter? When I read all of this book, well, well, so one thing on the chapter in the introduction is that it touches on dreams and it also mm -hmm. puts in this concept 
of Theros being a land where things believed and dreamed here eventually become real. Mm -hmm. And the idea that it's the collective belief by people over time that creates things. So monsters, gods, the very laws are all things that come from a common acceptance. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and, and it shows that you as a player have the ability to change those things. Yeah. Instead yeah, of so them being immutable. And that's, that's, yeah, it could be like, you can just immediately start thinking of campaign concepts that would be really neat based on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, just the larger, the, the big thing I took away from reading this book is that this reminded me that, wow, divinity used to matter a lot more in D&D &D than it does now. Mm -hmm. And over the editions, we've sort of separated ourselves from what the game used to be where religion and the gods had a huge impact mm -hmm. in play yeah. uh, whether you're a player or a dm you you felt this and saw this presence of the gods so i think of living greyhawk as an organized play campaign in third edition where you were from which region you were from lent itself to a religious leaning that your characters had so if you were from the duchy of jeff Mm -hmm. You followed one of the old faith gods almost always, right. and you were steeped in the lore of the old faith gods, Beori and Obed High and all this. If you're from Valuna, it's all about Rao. Right. And if you're one of those annoying players from the Theocracy of the Pale, <laughs> you were talking about Foltus and his Foltus. blinding light nonstop, right? right? Uh, gods opposed each other. So like if you were in a particular region and you saw bugbears that were wearing shields with a certain you know painting on it you you got like you had a reaction as a player mm -hmm. right as a character yeah uh it drove the choices you made it drove how people wrote adventures mm -hmm. uh it drove the plot lines in regions and and it's not just organized play and living greyhawk but you know if you think of forgotten realms the time of troubles exactly gods were turned into mortals and avatars and they had to walk the realms uh, the FR novels, Forgotten Realms novels, they're full of these mentions of the machinations of deities, the links between heroes and deities, all influenced by this sort of Greek Roman mythology. But, you know, or even a classic adventure like Temple of Elemental Evil, where you have St. Cuthbert versus Ayos right. and Zugmoy. Right. There, there's, you know, several pages of box text almost where the players sit back and watch Ayus interact with, with St. Cuthbert. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, you know, if you ask a lot of players who were beginning during first edition, what's your favorite hardcover book? A lot of them are going to say deities and demigods, right? Yeah. Because there's, there were stat blocks for the gods. And as soon as you give something a stat block, uh, players want to try to kill it. <laughs> and I can't count the number of campaigns I either ran or, or heard about or heard people talk about where the main goal of the campaign was the players wanted to become gods, that their characters wanted to become gods. That was it. That was the, the main thing. And you, you haven't seen that as much in fourth edition. I didn't see it a lot. And same for fifth edition. Uh, uh, part of it's because yeah. there are fewer higher level adventures, but that sort of thing isn't, isn't as prevalent. And that's like you, the first thing I saw when I read this book in my mind was, Oh Yeah we're getting the gods involved now that's going to change the way these campaigns run yeah it really does so um, let, oh go ahead yeah no 
please. I was going to say, let's do a quick rundown of the chapters of this book, and we'll see uh, how far we can get. So chapter one covers the heroes, races, class options, and backgrounds to make the character. It introduces supernatural gifts that these characters w- will get as they start. Um, so it's a feature set that Theros' Ventures setting them apart as heroes as opposed to normal mortals uh chapter two introduces the gods and talks about a uh, new sort of currency called piety that characters can earn to uh, as they please the gods that they worship uh chapter three looks at the mortal world the lands in which these adventures unfold it covers three particular city states uh, and then the lands that uh, the, the darkness around those three points of light, if you will. It also talks about the divine realm of Nyx and the underworld. Uh, chapter four builds on the guidelines from the Dungeon Master's Guide and highlights adventures set in Theros, focusing on the gods presenting omens that will lead the adventures, uh, adventurers through the plot of a campaign. Uh, Chapter 5 details the treasures of Theros, so it looks at artifacts of the gods, magical inventions, and other devices infused with the magic of the world. And Chapter 6 gives us our monsters. (laughs) So, you know, it talks about Greek-inspired or Greek mythology-inspired monsters uh, and gives them a unique place within this Theros setting. Did you want to mention anything about that I mean, overview. the only thing I'll say is that alt cover book, which I have, is mm-hmm. just one of the best. If it's not the best alt cover that we have had, you know, the art is just incredible. Yeah. Okay. So the cover I know is the the warrior fighting the um, the warrior. Okay. No, I didn't. I don't have the alt cover. That is a really cool alt cover. Yeah. I love the regular cover. Uh, yes. It was it was evocative, and it was. There are subtle details in that. It's not your typical, for me, typical fantasy cover in that the, the details were amazing. You know, the, in the shadows of the Hydra, it shows the starry night to, to bring to mind this idea that, you know, the, the gods are the stars. Yeah, and they're watching your actions and your actions are important to them, right? Yep, yeah. So, you know, just, just a really great cover. But let's delve into chapter one. So this involves the character creation. Uh, The first thing the book does is talk about heroic drives. So what they want you to do for a Theros campaign is take those bonds, ideals, flaws, personality traits, and crank those bad boys up to 11, right? They, They want you to make these, they're not just flaws, right? They're the Greek tragic flaws, right? Your Oedipus, uh, you're not just, you know, Bob the fighter. You, you've got these flaws that, that are so big that they will probably lead to your downfall in some way. They, there aren't just bonds, right? You're not just friends with the, uh, the rogue who fed you when you were a child, right? These are, these are the gods themselves are your bonds, yeah, and, and they do a nice job of taking typical um, uh, bonds or ideals or any of those that exist in the player's handbook and 
adding one word or two, usually a God, right? <laughs> to to throw in the like, no, wait, this is this is bigger than that, right? It's it's not just like, oh, I'm a little bit lazy, but it's for this reason and it's to a greater extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, they talk about supernatural gifts that are abilities given to characters from gods or creatures of legend. So these are feat-like abilities that also come with a characteristic. Uh, an example would be uh, Nick's born. So you were born of the night or born from the minds of the gods. Uh, so you get uh, a cloak of stars once per long rest. Attack rolls have a disadvantage against you for one minute and you have resistance to necrotic and radiant damage. That's pretty beefy right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the stronger ones, uh, but, but they tend to be pretty strong like that. And they aren't all what I would say balanced with each other. Yeah. But they're all really cool. Yep. Uh, Anvil rot, right? You've been actually created by the gods. Yeah. Um, you can have a heroic destiny. You can be against sort of the god, uh, gods. You're an iconoclast. Mm-hmm. Um, lifelong companion where you're sort of, you know, create this bond with other people. Nyx born, an oracle, pious, unscarred. I mean, they're, they're pretty big. I mean, it's kind of like be a demigod, right? Yep. And they also suggest instead of one of these, you can just give a feat to, to a character at first level. Uh, yeah, and they even say that you could, with DM permission in a normal campaign, have one of these be a feat. True. Well. Yep. Yep. So what we're seeing then is an upfront loading <laughs> of power into these characters. And not just loading uh, in terms of mechanical power, but narrative power. Um, right. You are larger than life. Yep. This, is, this is not, you know, you, you eat, you're, you're a farmer who, uh, who just happens to kill a, uh, you know, a, a carrying crawler one day and then decide to go adventuring. This is, this is, you are destined to, to do this. Um, and with that front loading of power, uh, there has to be, I think, a, a give back at some point. And for me, that give back is the races. Uh, not because the races aren't cool, but because the campaign limits what race you can be. And, and I love the races as presented. Um, so instead of just saying you can play any wild race that you want, the races in, here are human, uh, Leonin, Minotaur, Satyr, Triton, what did I and miss? Centaur. Centaur, yep. And, and I love campaigns that do that. I love campaigns that, that say, here, here is what belongs here, and this is the reason why, so work with this. Yeah. Which I think is really cool. Um, though they are pretty strong races, um, they are, mm-hmm. you know, these are not soft. Like the Leonin is plus two con, plus one strength. You can attack with your claws for a little damage. You move at 35 feet, so a little extra speed. Yep. Dark vision, you get a skill choice, and you have this roar that can still your enemies with fear. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. bad. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, are, they are possibly a little more powerful than a normal race, but it also cuts down on that ability to pick and choose yeah. and, and, you know, and optimize based on those choices. Yeah. So, so that's, what, that's what I like. 
mm-hmm. you know, as, and as I thought about it more, if I were running this campaign, I would just say everyone's human. All player characters are human. But go ahead and choose whatever race you want for the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. Since you are born of the gods, since you are touched in a way that's different than any other mortal, why not have wings, right? Not, why not be an Aarakocra and you just happen to be a human who was touched by a certain god and so you can fly? That's uh, a great idea. Yeah. And, and that story, you know, mechanical, mechanically, it lets players play around. But story-wise, you are in the Greek, you know, Greek world as we know it. So I wonder if the rules in Tasha's cauldron of everything are going to allow us to sort of do that for a campaign like this. Like, could you say everybody's human, but sort of get your racial benefit through this other mechanic that yeah. Tasha has? Yep. That, that's what I was wondering too. So we, we will know maybe in a few weeks or at least a few months. November. Yep. <laughs> yeah, worst case. Uh, uh, they, just to quickly say, Minotaur has the horns, and so you can do this kind of charging gore, or you can shove people around after you attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, uses your bonus action, but it's pretty fun. Satyr has some of my favorite art ever. It's from a Magic the Gathering card. Yeah. But but where, you know, the Satyr is just super happy with a glass of wine in her hand while sort of choking another Satyr next to her by mistake. Yeah. Just wonderful. But they can do, like, a Mirthful Leap, which adds D8 feet to your leap. Advantage on saves versus magical effects. You're, you get persuasion and performance, which is pretty sweet. Charisma decks. Triton gets an interesting plus one to strength, con, and charisma. Mm-hmm. And they have a really neat feature in this control air and water where they get the benefit and it grows over time, adding to its power, which I thought is kind of unusual. So you get fog cloud, but at third level, you can cast gust of wind with it. And at fifth level, wall of water, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So it's it's almost a Genasi feel, in in that sense. Yeah. Where you have the sp- strong strong theme. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, they have two new subclasses. Uh, one is the Bard's School of Eloquence, and the other's the Paladin's Oath of Glory. Uh, I I almost feel like there could have been more. Uh, I yeah. wanted like the wrestling fighter. I wanted the the seafaring ranger, you know that yeah. that there there. I think there was a little bit of a missed opportunity, but yeah, make your own, right? You wonder whether they just you know didn't hit some page count thing, or yeah. you know maybe there are some of these outlined. They're like, no, just no right. space. Yep. And but you know subclasses other than classes, subclasses are one of the harder things to to design and play test well. So you know I I can understand why there would be fewer. I took note of the Paladin here with the Oath of Glory. It feels to me a lot like a fourth edition Warlord. Okay. Um, So it has like inspiring smite. You deal damage, you use your divine smite and you grant temporary hit points to allies within 30 feet. Um, There's one where you can increase the speed that everybody moves, which is right out of the 4A Warlord uh, power list. You can turn someone getting hit into a miss. Like it, it just felt a lot like that and, and super fun. Mm-hmm. I still want a, a Warlord for 5th edition, but this is a nice kind of, you know, it can hold you over if you're a fan of that. Are you just lazy and just want other people to attack for you? So that <laughs> that too. Yeah. Okay. 
or where you're always buffing people, right? This is more right. like a, a, there was always a, the lazy warlord, and there was also right. a like constant tactically advancing yeah. you thing. Like everybody, take a move, right? Or everybody, right. you have yeah. temps. Everybody, you can. Yeah. And and this is that kind of build, right? Where it's it's the uh, the tactician kind. There is a new background called athlete. Uh, it's obviously got Olympic connections. I don't know if I can say the word Olympic without being sued by by the Olympics because they're pretty litigious. But uh, uh, there are obviously you know connections to the the Olympics with all sorts of powers that are uh, well. Your your special ability for this background is people know you because you're a famous athlete, so you can sort of get free room and board um, if people have seen you perform and all of the traits and flaws and stuff have to do with, with being an athlete. It's, it's pretty funny. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I love the write-up when visiting yeah. any settlement within a hundred miles of where you grew up, there's a 50% chance you can find someone there who admires you. Right. <laughs> and the other 50%, they were rooting for the other person. That could be. Yeah. So, right. So if you, if you roll uh, 51 or higher, they, they're wearing the other team's Jersey and they don't like you all that much. Perfect. Uh, and so, in general, um, just reading this first section made me want to run a Theros campaign very much. Yeah. And if you can get me to want to run a campaign of, of your book, you, you've done a good job in your first chapter. Because I, I think I'm pretty discerning, uh, and, and I really like this. But yeah, this agreed. Is, yeah, but this is what I would do. I would make it a really short campaign, uh, but epic right from the start. It's going to be fast leveling, right? It's going to be one four-hour session for first level, one four-hour session for second. We're going to keep the action moving. There aren't going to be any battles less than deadly. Um, we're not going to have a lot of drama, right? We're going to. This is Hercules going through his his tasks as he yeah. gets gets stronger, and then uh, you're going to be fighting the gods themselves when you get up to twentieth level because that's why they're there. Right, because we're going to rail against them. Uh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Like just, yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. Yep. You know, for the glory, for the cause, for these various gods, and go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I want to run when I when I read that first chapter. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, and I'll just say again that I think that also what I got from this first chapter was just that, like I said before, remembering how deities can really shine in games and it doesn't just have to be a Theros campaign, but you can, you can take this idea and go like, wow, you know, I can reinforce how deities are in my current campaign, right. Or whatever game I'm playing. Yep. They can, I mean, every world pretty much except dark sun, <laughs> kind, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of, ha, you know, have the gods there. It's just a matter of what dial you want to turn to, if it's you're going to have more or less of of an impact on the day-to-day -day lives of regular people and the day-to-day -day lives of adventurers. So I think we're at a point where we should stop because we had a lot of news and we really went into good detail on that first chapter. So next time we will do part two of our look at this wonderful book and talk more about it and how we would use it if we were running a campaign there. Sounds great. All yeah, right. Chapter two is pretty, a, a pretty neat chapter. So I look forward to that. That's right. 
So thank you so much, everyone out there for listening. We appreciate your support. Uh, if you are a patron, extra thumbs up for you. Thank you for giving us a, a few of your drachma uh, to, to see. That was a Greek reference. <laughs> that was well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know where that information was stored in my brain, but it just <laughs> popped out. Uh, of course, something really important like picking up the dry cleaning is gone now, but that, that's the way it goes. For the so thank you uh, for listening. Thank you for your support. If you would like to become a patron, you can find us on patreon.com slash MMP. And again, if you can't support us that way, we certainly understand. And you can help us out by just talking about us on, on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, Instagram, anywhere where you talk to your social friends or your antisocial friends even. We'll, we'll take them too. Uh, you know, by uh, by pointing us pointing them in our direction, uh, Teo. Speaking of the internet, where can people follow your work? You can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream, my blog at AlphaStream.org, uh, and hopefully you can look up Jasper's Game Day and find the game that I played with Sharif and other awesome players. There you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can talk to us, Teos and I, on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can also follow Down With D&D itself on Twitter at Down With D&D. Down With D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Abadia, what are we going to do now? Go kill some monsters in the name of our God, of course. Of course. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.